0: Beverly Jenkins was a librarian in her 40s when she decided she was going to write a book.
1: When I first got published, I had a son in kindergarten. I had a daughter who just started middle school. I had a job. I had a brownie troop. I had a bunch of hats that I was wearing in the community. I had a bunch of hats that I was wearing at church. I wrote at night. My very first writing space was the front hall closet.
0: 49 books later, Jenkins is the premier writer of black historical fiction in the United States, an NAACP Image Award nominee, and the recipient of a Nora Roberts Lifetime Achievement Award. What inspired me most about speaking to her, and there were so many things that inspired me, was her commitment to write for the first person in her audience, herself.
1: I'm Beverly Jenkins, and this is a lesson in finishing your damn
0: book. What is your earliest memory of being creative?
1: I was the editor of my elementary school newspaper in the fourth grade. So Mm -hmm. ones that make me like nine, eight or nine years old. I wasn't planning on being a writer, though. Mm. For me, it was just books, 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 books.
0: How did they have a newspaper in the fourth grade? What did they write? What did they report on? Well, we did, you
1: know, if I can remember, because, like I said, it was a <laughs> long time ago, back when the earth was cooling,
0: <laughs> we published
1: poems, what classes we're working on, interviews with a couple of the teachers. Myra Jones Elementary School was the name of the school, and it was called the Jones School Comet. And Mrs. Notaris, who was my fourth grade homeroom teacher, was the, the teacher who, who started the ball rolling. So that's my earliest memory.
0: I love it. But you said you, you had no plans to be a writer.
1: Mm-mm, nope. All I ever wanted to do was work in a library. That was it. I was a reader, and books were my thing. And one of my earliest memories is of my mom reading to me
0: you remember your favorite?
1: She read us mostly classics. So that first memory, probably my very first memory, is of her reading James Weldon Johnson's The Creation to me. Wow. She read to me in the womb Yeah. in 1951. 1950, I was born in 51. I remember that. I've got six siblings. I'm the oldest of seven. So she read to us every night until we could read on our own. Fairy tales, nursery rhymes. I remember you know, reading the same stories. All the kids started coming because we're stair steps. <laughs> seven of us in, in 13 years. Just, just great memories of her presence. Dad was working two jobs trying to keep the food on the table for these seven kids. Mm-hmm. She was an avid reader herself. Mm. Um, and I've told this story before. The libraries in Detroit were segregated when she was growing up in Detroit. She's born, bred, and raised in the city. And the African-American authors were not shelved in with the rest of the collection. So you had to ask for them, and they were held behind the desk. You could not take them home. You had to sit in the library and read it. That's what she did. She was like, you know, I don't have a problem with this. Red and red and red and red and uh-huh. the classics Langston Hughes and Weldon Johnson and Conte Cullen and all those folks. So that love of reading, she passed on to all of us, all seven of us, still read.
0: How did you start to fall in love with history? Because you say history moves you. Through
1: her, mm. through my mom, her grandfather, so be my great grandfather, was what they called back then a, a race man. He was a garbage and Was also Muslim, he had converted. He went to Mecca and he went to Medina and lived in Pakistan for a while and lived in Nepal. And that black history was very, very important to him. And he gave that love to her. She's the second oldest of seven. So anytime there was anything on TV, I was young in the 50s during the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, that stuff was always on TV. And she would always say, be proud of who you are. And there's nothing that anybody can take from you as long as you're educated, as long as you're reading. So that history is a part of me. And then when, and this is really crazy, when I was working at the MSU library, I was the head clerk of the graduate library. They had a complete set of the Journal of Negro History. Mm -hmm. And I would, and this was 74, 75, 76. And I would take armfuls of those out. There's a river that runs through campus called the Red Cedar River. And I'd sit on the banks of the Red Cedar with my lunch. and just sort of go through keeping my history chops on point. And little did I know that 30 years in the future, that I would be using a lot of those articles mm-hmm. in my works. Life is kind of strange.
0: Yeah, you have written 49 books. Yeah, and your process is?
1: I'm a pantser. I don't know if anybody, if you know what that is. No. We have plotters, people who outline and <laughs> do the synopsis and, and, and all of that. And we pantsers don't. <laughs> it's a very, very organic process. I always say it's like walking over the Grand Canyon on a tightrope with no net. And it terrifies plotters. And you know, they can't imagine working that way. But there are a lot of us who are pantsers. Mm-hmm. We write by the seat of our pants.
0: Let me expand on that. It means you don't like to outline. Nope. You don't have a daily process for writing. Nope. <laughs> you write when it, the mood overtakes you. And I, I've heard you say that you've written nine days straight. Yeah. Yeah. No sleeping. Drives my editor no nuts. eating.
1: buy her wigs for Christmas because she's got no hair from pulling her hair out with me. But I may start out with just a kernel of a story or a kernel of a character. And we parents just start throwing stuff up against the wall to see what sticks. I often say I feel like the first two weeks when I'm working on a new book, first two weeks, I'm sort of like Moses wandering around in the the (laughs) desert. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with, the, with the Israelites looking for the promised
0: land. And then it starts to slowly unfold. You did write your first book in 1994, Night Song.
1: First published in 94, yeah. But I've work, been working on it for, on and off, for maybe 10 years.
0: What started you finally, I'm going to write a book? I was writing it just for me.
1: I'd always loved a good love story. My sisters and I, we always loved a good love story but there was nothing in the marketplace that represented women who looked like us, or my mom or my aunts or any of that. And I read romance and I read everything. I'm a big fantasy reader, but I read romance also.
0: So was it like Harlequin? Were you a Harlequin person?
1: I was, I was not reading Harlequins. I was reading, quote unquote, the classics. I was reading Victoria Holt. I was reading Mary Stewart from the library. <laughs> Joan Aiken-Hodge, Charlotte Armstrong, those people. I had read The Flame and the Flower when it came out. So I started working on this story and the market basically was closed to African-Americans back then, at least for genre writing. I said, I was just writing for me. You know, I had this story about this mm-hmm. Buffalo soldier and school teacher. And I tell people it was 700 pages of heat. There was no story <laughs> at all. <laughs> and you open that thing and, and flames would come out. <laughs> Asbestos gloves just to hold (laughs) the the three ring binder that it was in. But I was just writing it for me because there was no place to get published. Vivian Stevens didn't publish Elsie Washington and Sandra Kitt until the early 90s. We're talking anywhere from 75 to 85, where there was nothing unless we were slaves in the story or spear carriers in the movies or whatever. I was working at the Park Davis Pharmaceutical library it was probably 85 86 because I stayed home with my daughter I was an at-home mom and went back to work and one of the women that I worked with had been published just recently published we were celebrating her she had written a sweet romance for those who don't know what sweet romance is that's a romance with either fade to black or no love saints nothing on page mm-hmm. And I told her about this little story I was working on and she asked for me to bring it in. So she wanted to see it and I brought it in and she said, you really need to get this published. And I'm like, where? Mark is close. Publishing, back then there were like 35 different publishers. Now we got five. Her name's Laverne. She, she and I are still very good friends. I tell her that, tell people that she harassed me every about <laughs> finding an editor and all of that. My mother's fault when I was little, baby, baby. She would buy me cloth books. Mm. She and my dad would buy me cloth books. And of course, you know, too young to read them. I'd eat them, eat the pages. <laughs> and mama would say, eat those words, baby. Eat those words, baby. You know, I guess all of those words that I'd eaten as a toddler. And Laverne harassing me every day. I somehow found Vivian Stevens. I have no idea. I cannot tell you how I found her. Might've run across her name in the romantic times. And she had gotten out of publishing. Now, I think she was really... Probably the beginning of American romance when she was an editor at Dell. But she had gotten out of publishing and she was running a small literary agency. And so I sent her my little raggedy manuscript just to shut Laverne up. And she called me at work probably a week later, and said she wanted to represent me. It took us a long time to get somebody to publish it because nothing like that had ever been done before. A 19th century story starring Black people was supposed to be about slavery, and mine wasn't. Well, not directly. And publishing had no box for it. Kept hearing great writing, great writing, but, 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 but. So I probably got enough rejections to paper my house and yours and that butt was always there they know what to do with it but luckily and you know, when you have the talent and the whatever and you're in the right place at the right time
0: and what's so beautiful is that you did write it for you
1: yeah i wrote it for me so all the rejections didn't
0: matter that's right
1: because i was going to work in the library the next day <laughs> me. Right. my dream had already come true
0: and you said that it took seven or eight years from that time but now we're up to 49. So how, so when, (laughs) I need to know the details of when did the launch really happen, the takeoff? And, And this is a very practical question for the writers out there, but you eventually talk them out of outlines. But in the beginning, how were you selling I have to send a synopsis in order to get paid. <laughs> okay. Okay. In the beginning, you wrote the book. When
1: Alan Edwards bought the first book, I had three books in my head already. I had Night Song, which was the first book. Mm. I knew I wanted to do the African-American Doctors of the 19th Century, the Females. And I knew I wanted to do Indigo. Mm. Because I had seen Julie Dash's movie, Daughters of the Dust. And those purple hands really, really resonated with me. So I knew that um, that was going to be a story too.
0: And I have to say that logline for Indigo, you said you read, you picked up, was it a letter? It was an excerpt of a
1: conversation in a book called Bullwhip Days, Hmm. which is a compilation of WPA interviews with freed slaves during the 30s. So these people were like 100 years old, 90 years old. And one of the gentlemen said he knew a man named Wyatt, who was free, who sold himself into slavery for the love of a woman. And he said that love must be a terrible thing, you know, so, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that sort of stopped my heart because it's like, really? Yeah. (laughs) Oh,
0: gosh. Yeah, I know. It's brilliant. So I'm going to get Indigo right after this interview
1: (laughs) because... It's called a classic, The Letters. I mean, it's an interesting book because the letters that are at the beginning, and I'm not going to spoil it for you.
0: No, please don't. No.
1: Didn't come to me until about a third of the way through the book. Mm -hmm. And it was almost as if the man who pins the letter to his sisters wanted me to let them know what happened to him. It was one of the eeriest experiences I've ever had. I had one of my readers said, well, you know, Miss Bev, these people actually existed. They're just using you to tell their stories.
0: I really do believe that too. I, I really do believe that too. I remember temping and getting a story around the time in the Underground Railroad many years ago and sitting at my desk. Like crying. That's (laughs) where that Thank god nobody fired me. I don't how could I know this? Yeah. Yep, exactly. Unless it's coming through me. Yeah.
1: And when I finished it, it was no typos. Mm. I was soaking wet. And I was in tears. Wow. But they kept giving me contracts. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) right. How has the landscape changed between 1994 when you first started to now? Because you've obviously been a a light for many people.
1: I'm trying. That's your job is to try and make the path wider. Mm -hmm. The change is, it's who gets to write romance now. There are so many African-American women and women of color who are getting to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. And women from the West Indies and women from Africa and, and, you know, and Black women of America, and everyone of you know, all identities. We've got a lot of male-male stories. We've got a lot of lesbian stories. The model that was in place when I started, a couple that was male-female, straight and white, is no longer the model. Everybody who loves, and no matter who they love, gets to tell their story now. And I, and I think that that's, that's probably one of the best things to ever come about for the romance genre. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I saw one of the clips from an interview where you said the language in the letters was so poetic and flowery and beautiful. And, and an early reader had said to you, Black people don't sound like that.
1: But I mean, if you look at the diary excerpts, I built my career on the scholarship of Dorothy Sterling. She has an awesome book called We Are Your Sisters, Black Women of the 19th Century. And it's filled with diary excerpts and stories and letters and... You look at these letters and how beautifully they were written. So for her to say, this is my hairdresser, by the way, that told me that, (laughs) (laughs) to have someone say, we didn't speak that way. And I told her, I said, you need to stop getting your history from Hollywood and television.
0: The portrayal of strong and determined women as well.
1: Black women have always written that story and and the white heroine has changed, but We never had the luxury of just sitting back. And that was one of the things that I learned from Dorothy Sterling. She said, black women were pretty successful after the civil war. And she said, and and we had, because we had these three gifts, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: one was that we worked, whether we were slave, whether we were enslaved or whether we were free, because if you were free and on your own, you had to provide. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And if you were free and you were married, you also had to provide because our men were usually relegated to very, very low-paying menial jobs. So you needed that extra income. So we worked. The second gift was the commitment to community and social activism. You had lots of black women out there marching and, and chasing down chasing down slave catchers in the in the communities and mm-hmm. leading the charge. Yeah, and the third gift was pushing the the envelope on gender and race and they still are today And we're still doing that so I try when I put my heroines together a lot of times when they present themselves to me they'll have one or two or all three of those gifts so I wouldn't be true to the history of uh, unless a woman is one of the elite but still she's got to deal with the the societal issues and all of that but no we're not sitting back eating bonbons all day
0: we talk about leadership in this podcast and I'm curious, do you think women lead differently? And if yes, how?
1: You want to say yes, but I've heard stories of people who have female bosses who are absolutely awful. So I don't think we can generalize on that. The idea that we are leading is what is novel. We are examples for daughters, and um, because the daughters coming up from my generation are doing incredible incredible things, but I don't know if we lead differently or not. I mean, I can't say that. That's like I said, it's a generalization and you'll have somebody say, well, you know, I had this female boss and she was not a good person.
0: Yeah. What it is though, is that it's what you said. We can't not lead. We have no choice, but to lead. So it's, it is not novel. We have to. I want to talk about your latest book. And I I know, too, that you've written 26 books in the 19th century. Is that right?
1: Girl, I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that you were moving on into the pirate days. Tell me about this recent one. Wild Rain
1: is the title. It dropped in February. Spring Rain Lee is her name. She is the sister of the hero of the previous book. And she made such an impression. That everywhere I went, people wanted her story. She's going to get, you got going to give her a story? you got going to give her a story? Gonna... She's a rancher. She is badass. <laughs> She's very, very independent, very strong. A lot of trauma growing up. And she is barbed wire because of that trauma. One of the issues with her that had a lot of people talking was that she didn't want kids, which is... Sort of novel and romance. And her hero is what we call a cinnamon roll. He's very, very soft. Very nerdy. He's a news reporter. He comes to Wyoming.
0: Sounds like my kind of guy, actually. I like nerdy. I like him nerdy. Yeah,
1: Yeah. every time we see him, he's got a book in his hand. (laughs) He's reading the three-volume Frederick Douglass's autobiography. So every time we see him, he's reading. But he's a former slave. I used him to tell the history of the Black sailors mm. of the Union Navy, because we don't know a lot about them and their service to the country. I like for the, rather than dump a lot of information on the story, I will put that history into a character's backstory so that they sort of wear the history. So he comes west to interview her brother, and they wind up meeting Spring, and his name is Garrett. They wind up meeting during a snowstorm. She sort of saves him from, he gets thrown from his horse and he's limping down the road. And she's like, you know, I don't take in people. I am not a people person, but it's a snowstorm. And I guess you're here to see my brother. So I guess I need to help you get out of this mess. And he is absolutely fascinated by her. He has never seen a woman wear a gun belt before, but she she breaks horses for a living. She has a little garden and raises and butchers hogs. So she is in her own little world. And here comes this guy. And <laughs> and she's not looking for love at all. <laughs> no, not doing it. And, and there's a, a point in the story, and I can give you this without giving a spoiler, where she tells her sister-in-law, who's the heroine of the book before. She says, I think I'm in love. And her sister-in-law gets up and goes to the window and, looks out and spring asks what are you looking for? She said, I'm looking to see a pigs are flying because she said, she's in love. So
0: <laughs> what would you say to women who have a book in the drawer or have stopped writing because they got rejected or somebody told them that their story is to not mainstream enough.
1: That's why we have self-publishing now. (laughs) When I started out, we didn't have self-publishing. Once you were rejected, you either kept trying or you went to a different publisher, but get that book out of the drawer and get busy. There is a market of readers who are waiting for your story. There's always somebody out there looking for a story that you're going to write. Finish it. Stop talking about it. Mm -hmm. Finish it. Learn as much as you can about the business of writing. And there's a great community of writers out there who will give you the help that you need, know, especially with romance. I mean, we're always helping each other. Learn how to upload, learn where to find a cover artist, learn how to do a blurb, learn how to do the marketing that goes with self-publishing. I would send people to Jane Friedman's website. Jane Friedman was a big time editor in the 90s and the 00s. And I had her own imprint. And now she's just sitting back and helping. Aspiring. I don't want to say young because aspiring can be any age. I wasn't published until I was in my forties. So don't let that deter you. There's no such thing as being too old. You have a daughter. The daughter and a son. Forty son is thirty-three. So they were grown when you were writing. Not the boy. He started in you know kindergarten. I'm an adopted parent.
0: Me too. Are you? you have to
1: read the blessing series if you haven't read my blessing series oh I'm my women's fiction that. series is about adopted kids and found families and
0: oh, good.
1: there's 11 books in that series to go back to the women who have stuff in a drawer when i first started publishing i had a son in kindergarten i had a daughter who just started middle school i had a job i had a brownie troop i had a bunch of hats that i was wearing in the community I had a bunch of hats that I was wearing at church. I rode at night. My very first writing space was the front hall closet. So don't tell me that you don't have a place to ride or you don't have time. I have sat at band practice in the middle of the dark under the lights at the stadium, editing, <laughs> sitting in band concerts, editing until the lights went out. I paid my kids to stay away from me when I was riding. They, they would get a little piece of my roadie money. <laughs> Let mama write. It's a job, not a thing where you're telling. I, I did this in a speech on a ballroom on the floor laughing. This is not a a little hobby. You don't tell kids, well, mommy's going to go down and play on the computer. You Tell them, that's a the job. I will pay you. Mine's not old
0: enough to be paid yet, but he will be. I, I'm just going to have to say it again. Forties, 49 yeah. books, yeah. people. 49 books. I mean, uh, come on. <laughs>
1: It's incredible. If you look at how prolific a lot of the romance writers are, I could be like in the slouch category. (laughs) My girlfriend, Brenda Jackson, I think she hit a hundred books last year. And she does a lot of the category, but she also does big books. And Lord, none of us can keep up with Nora. I mean, Nora does a book every 90 days. If you have that writing bug within you it's not going anywhere it's gonna sit on you and sit on your shoulder and whisper in your ear until you decide i'm strong enough and i'm brave enough to do this it's hard work but you could be at home in your pajamas like me all day (laughs) (laughs) i mean the universe
0: gives you this dream for a reason. I think it's interesting though you said your dream your dream was to be in the library and then it shifted and you allowed that that shift to happen you obviously you were doing preparation.
1: Yeah, but you know life is so strange because you may want something and you know the universe says okay here you got it. Now put this hat on. Try this. Mm-hmm. So you either pivot and open yourself like you said to the change or spend the rest of your life going what if? What if I had taken that? What if I had taken that hand that was given to me? So get busy out there.
0: If I asked you to complete the sentence, my wish for every other woman is... to Have the life that you want.
1: Because for a lot of years, you had the life that you were given or the life that you were supposed to have by society's eyes. I want you to have the life that you want, the life that you choose, the life that empowers you to be your best. Because when you're your best, you're the best for best for everybody who's in your life and you're a good role model and for your daughters and your sons.
0: You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com.